Well, good morning again, church. It's so good to see you. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. It's good to be gathered to worship King Jesus together. If you're gathering for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room, dining room, wherever you happen to be gathered. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we've never had a chance to be introduced, my name is Jamie. It is my great joy. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. In most weeks, it's also my my joy. I get to open up God's word with you all uh, uh, on these Sunday mornings. And so, so thankful that we get to do that together, that the Lord speaks to us through his word. The only thing perfect that happens this morning is like his, the reading of his word, like when we hear from him. And so that's what we're praying would happen, that the Lord would speak to us. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing this series that we began a couple of weeks ago, looking at the parables of Jesus. We're looking at several of these leading up to Holy Week, leading up to Palm Sunday, and then Good Friday and Easter. And they're all ones out of the book of Luke. And so what I want us to do is to see in this, like, why does Jesus tell these particular stories? Oftentimes, he's helping to answer a question, and he's inviting us to consider through just the everyday common things of this world, hey, do you see what the kingdom is like? But friends, we need the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to invite you to join me. Just You'll see the words on, on the screen, this prayer for illumination. But would you read this aloud with me as we get into our text this morning? Oh God, your word is more precious than fine gold and sweeter than purest honey. As we turn to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust. Amen. So this morning, we are going to be looking at this parable called the parable of the rich fool. It is found in Luke chapter 12. And so I would encourage you to have a Bible in front of you. You can get one out of the pews this morning. You can also, obviously, app on a phone, uh, but you can also scan the QR code that is in the pew in front of you, which will bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes or you can access that through this is cp.church and click the little next steps icon. But this morning, we're going to look at this particular parable of Jesus. What we're going to see is a man who comes to him, asks a particular question. He's asking Jesus to resolve something for him. And Jesus, as he seems to do, right, is going to say, hey, I hear your question, but there's a question, there's an issue beneath the issue, and that's what I'm interested in getting to. So I know you got this thing you're wondering about, but I care so much about you. I'm going to, in loving kindness, seemingly ignore that question so that we can get to the root, to the heart of the matter. And what he does for this man and for the crowd that's gathering, he is doing for us this morning as well. So let me read this. This is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, and then we will make our way back through this parable this morning. Remembering this is God's word to us. Here's how it begins. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 16. And so he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, ah, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I will build larger ones. And there 
I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So this is God's word for us. It is the favorite topic of everyone. You know, you show up at church, like, I hope they talk about money today. I mean, I'm just dying for somebody to talk about money, you know, and maybe you've invited somebody here with you this morning and you're like, I know that everyone comes to church to hear about money. Now, obviously I'm being sarcastic here. The reality is we can cringe at this, but friends, here's what I want you to hear that Jesus talks about money more than almost any other topic that he addresses. Not because he's trying to rob us of joy, but because he knows the way money can get a hold of our hearts. And he loves us so much that he wants to address it. And so to help us with that this morning, to kind of get into our text, uh, I want to talk about, to start out here, I want to talk about the snowshoe pastor. Now, you may not be familiar with the snowshoe pastor. I was not until this summer. He also was called, his name was John Lewis Dyer, and the men that knew him just referred to him as Father John. Uh, He was not a Catholic priest. He was a Methodist pastor, so they're not usually called father, but just affectionately, uh, these men in the mid-1800s began to refer to this man that way. He lived from 1812 to 1901, and here's a bit about his story that I learned this summer. My wife and I, as many of you know, uh, we had a sabbatical this summer, um, and one of the things we got to do as part of our celebration of our 25th wedding anniversary is we got to go, just the two of us, out to Colorado. And we were out there in the Rocky Mountains. We were in a little town called Fairplay. And so it's about maybe 30, 40 miles south of Breckenridge. It is not like one of the ski resort areas. This is an old mining town, all right? Um, And much of the town still looks the way that it would have in the 1800s. It's very small. I mean, there were literally signs in the downtown area, right? Like hanging on the the street lamps of like, there was like six photos of like high school students. And that was the graduating class from the local high school. They're like, well, just display their pictures in downtown. It was very, very small. And one of the things that we did while we were there is you could pay a few dollars and, and do this kind of walking museum because there was a particular stretch where they had buildings that had been there, like I said, since the 19th century, since the like kind of mid-1800s. And not only were they buildings from Fair Play, but also some of the surrounding smaller mining communities, they had preserved these and so they brought them in. And you could go walk through it. And you could go through the schoolhouse and see like how that would have been set up. And then you could also walk in and see, oh, the barber and the dentist shared an office. It was the same guy. That's terrifying, all right? But like that's how it, how it went. But one of the first things we got to go through was we walked into this little chapel. And there as we looked, and there were maybe like four or five pews. It was this very small, intimate space there was this particular plaque. And it began to tell the story of Father John Lewis Dyer, a man who had grown up in the Midwest, who himself had gone to work in some mines in Minnesota and Wisconsin, at one point became a Methodist minister. So he would travel, do this kind of itinerant ministry. Tragically, his wife and a daughter passed away, and he finds himself just looking for a fresh start. And so he goes out to the mountains of Colorado, knowing that there is a gold rush that is happening. 
And so people were moving out there and he had this heart like, hey, these men who have left their families and their hometowns of the allure, like the promise of maybe there's gold in those hills, maybe there's gold in the riverbed, like maybe we can strike it rich. And so somehow word had gotten out, pre-social media, somehow people are just finding out about gold in those areas, including Fair Play, Colorado. And so he went out there And he ministered to those men. He became known as the snowshoe pastor because when the winter would come, as it does in that part of the country, and the snow would just pile up feet upon feet, and there are avalanches and mountain passes that no one could get through, he would traverse with snowshoes and cross-country skis. Like He would make it through these dangerous mountain passes because he had this heart to go from mining town to mining town to mining town so that these men, as this little plaque talked about, would not be given to the allure, the distraction, the pull of gold. It wasn't that he was anti them finding gold. I don't actually think he was like, gold is bad, right? But he stood in the line of a 2,000-year tradition that we hear spoken of by Jesus, this prophetic stream that he was in to say, hey, let me warn you. When the glimmer of that, when that thing, because he knew these men, not only would they have problems with alcohol and being intoxicated with that, but they more so, he was concerned with, they would become intoxicated with finding this gold. And then if they found it, how many of them, though, never found a true happiness? That they would traverse this terrain and go out there and leave everything in hopes of securing this newfound wealth. And so this snowshoe pastor, this Father John, he felt it his life's calling to say, hey, friends, let me come alongside of you and let me share what should be a warning to heed. And he stands in that tradition of Jesus. It's what we just heard. And so this morning, I want us to look at how Jesus answers this question. And really what you have in these opening verses is a man making a request, right? He comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, all right, make my brother share the inheritance with me. Because no family's ever fought over money. Apparently, it's a thing that happened back then, right? Like, so in this, he's like, somehow maybe his brother, it might be a real act of injustice. Like his brother is holding it to himself. He's not giving his brother the fair share. And it's not that Jesus doesn't care about that. But what happens here is this redirection. Look with me at verses 13 to 15 again. So Man shows up, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And then Jesus says to him, all right, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then what Jesus does, knowing the bigger issue, he's like, sure, I'll talk to you about this, but I'm not going to talk and address your question the way that you want. I want to get to the heart of the matter. And so he begins to redirect the focus. He begins to redirect the man's question. And then Jesus says this in verse 15. And he said to them, now notice that it started with one man asking a question, but now Jesus is speaking to them. And he's speaking to us this morning. One man asked a question, but Jesus knows the heart of a man and says, hey, it's not just this guy that things need to be redirected. We need to get to the heart of the matter. He knows them, the crowd there, and he knows us this morning. And he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A couple things to highlight there, that word life that you see sort of highlighted in, in, in blue there. It is the Greek word that gets life gets translated from the Greek word zoe. 
Had Jesus meant to communicate that your life, your physical makeup, your, your lungs, you know, like being able to, to take in air and oxygen and your heart being able to pump blood, he would have used the word bios. But he uses the word zoe to say like, hey, who you are, like the core of you, your essence, to actually have a life that's flourishing, that's more than just your physical makeup, to have this flourishing, this joy, this absolute delight, he says, your zoe does not consist in the abundance of possessions. I listened to a talk this week by an author of a new book called uh, The Good Life. And in this particular uh, book, it is the result it is the longest like sociological study that's ever been conducted, I think in the US, maybe in the world. It's been going on for 80 plus years. So back in 1940, thousands of people committed to allow these, uh, these um, professors at Harvard University to check in with them year after year after year. They said they literally have just page after page, like just cabinets, file cabinets filled with the stories of how this various group of people, all right, what happened in their life? Some came from very like under-resourced neighborhoods. Some were actually students at Harvard. One of the participants in it was John F. Kennedy himself. So you had this whole wide range of people. And year after year, these people, all right, it wasn't like they were being stalked. They gave permission for this. They were interviewed and they would submit their responses to questions because they were trying to measure what brings happiness. And so for, it's like been going on for like 84 plus years, I believe now. And they took their findings, which many people are familiar with, and they tried to distill it down into more like kind of popular level book. I'm like, oh, that's probably my level. I can maybe understand that. And I'm not even going to read the book. I'm going to listen to a podcast about it, right? And so, but in this, the author begins telling the story. And the big, to not bury the lead, the big thing over and over that they found is in this study, decade upon decade, with some people who, according to the world standards, had absolutely made it. One of the over, like just the like resounding results of this study. It's not just little snippets, it's backed by data, like so much data is money does not bring happiness. Now, as Christians, as people familiar with the teachings of Jesus, I think we actually know that, but I think we know it at a mind level, but not always at a heart level. What brings Zoe is not the accumulation, as Jesus says, or the abundance of possessions. Now, because Jesus is anti-possessions, we'll talk about that more in a moment. His ministry was funded through people who had wealth, both men and women that would travel with him. Like, he's not anti-possessions and wealth, so don't hear that. But when our pursuit of that, if we think Zoe, true life, comes from accumulating more, Jesus would tell us it does not bring Zoe. A Harvard study backing up the words of Jesus. Not that we needed that, but in case you were wondering, it proves the same point. And then Jesus says this. You notice the language before. Take care. He's like, please pay attention. Or the, and then he says, be on your guard. Because there is this thing, this insidious thing, that the pursuit of wealth and money has a way of gripping our hearts in such a way that we don't actually know that it's happening. It's like this breathing in something that would actually bring death, but we can't sense it or smell it or have any awareness that we just breathe it in over and over again. And Jesus says this. It's why so often, if you read through the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
when Jesus talks about money, which he does quite a lot about, he uses language like this, be mindful, be on guard. Because the reality is almost every other sin out there, we tend to know that we're committing it. Like hear these words from Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says this way, says it this way about this statement that Jesus makes. This is a remarkable statement. Think of another traditional sin that the Bible warns against, say adultery. Jesus doesn't say, be careful, you aren't committing adultery. He doesn't have to. Halfway through, you don't say, oh, wait a minute, I think this is adultery. Oh, you're not my spouse, right? Like, that's not how it plays out. Like, you know. You know it, yet even though the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. They are in denial. And so what Jesus does in his kindness, he says, all right, you want me to solve this inheritance issue. But friend, you have brought up a good point that all of us need to hear that there's something happening at a heart level where we can become consumed by this. And the crazy thing is, the scary thing is, we're actually unaware of it. And so he then tells this particular parable. So there's this redirection that takes place. And what we see then as well in the verses that follow in this parable, there is a rebuke that takes place. It's not a rebuke to shame the man or the crowd that is gathered. It is a rebuke done out of love. It's, it's to help them and us be on guard for this drift that can happen, where we can buy into the lie that just more of what we already have will somehow bring happiness. So look with me again back at these verses. I'll just read this, the parable one more time. So Jesus tells them a parable. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Why don't you relax? Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so in this rebuke that takes place, I think we have to ask a question. The first is, do you, do you hear what the man's plan is, right? Like, it's not a bad thing. I'm going to read you several Proverbs in a moment. Like, there's a lot to be said for being wise with what the Lord has given, to be good stewards of those things. Bible, even, we could have looked at another parable uh, as well, one of the other ones that talk about money, and even a man who does some wrong things is at least commended for being shrewd with money. Like, the Lord is, like, for those things. And so the man has this abundant crop, the yield is far greater than what he's ever experienced. And he doesn't want it to rot out in the field. He's like, this needs to be harvested. This needs to be brought in. And I don't have enough space to store it all. Like, this is a good problem to have. And so he decides, hey, I need to tear down my smaller barns and I'll build larger ones. And so it raises the question, right? Are bigger barns really the issue? And no, I don't actually think that's the issue that's going on here. Like, it was a smart move. There's good strategy behind that. Like, there's nothing to look at that and be like, all right, man, no, you should have just left him about in the field. He's like, I want to harvest this all. The issue is not the harvest. The issue is not the yield. The issue is, it's not God saying like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. You're not supposed to have that much wealth. Let me dial it back a bit. The Proverbs 10, verse five says this, he who gathers in summer is a prudent son but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Like there's this call to like, hey, if the Lord is bringing this harvest, like 
Get out there, do the work, bring it in. Don't, don't sleep in, don't, don't waste this moment and this opportunity. So there's wisdom in this. So what's the real issue then? Like, why does he tell this particular parable? And I, I think what Jesus is getting at is the issues that we see here are a focus on self and where we look to for our security. Like, I don't know if you noticed the, the language as I, as I was reading through it. It tells us, for one, there's this description, the land produced plentifully. It doesn't say the man did all the right things and the man summoned the rain at just the right time. No, it says the land produced plentifully, which if we zoom out, we realize very quickly, well, who's behind the land producing plentifully? Is it this farmer? Is it this man? Or is it the Lord himself? Well, it's, it's clearly meant to communicate. No, it's the Lord. The Lord allowed. The Lord made the land produce plentifully, like beyond what he had ever experienced. But when we look back then at this, all right, if the problem's not with the barns, but first there's a problem of self. That Notice the man's plan, all right? He thought to himself, so he's having this inner monologue, dialogue, right? Maybe like we all do, like we're driving down the road and we're thinking of things and we're strategizing and we're playing scenarios out. He's trying to figure out, what do I do with this really good problem to have? All right, so he asks himself, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will. I will say to my, he's like, I'll build, tear down my barns, right? I'll do all of these things. Like the focus, maybe one could say, is this. It's like, I, I, I. I'm going to do this. I will do this. He doesn't consult the Lord. He doesn't ask for help or wisdom. It's a focus initially and immediately on what I will do. It's my harvest. It's my barns. I will do what I want to do. Functionally, what's being communicated through this description is a man who's bent on his will being done. And we see this exemplified when he says, and it's like this talk to his soul. Then my soul will say, hey, bro, hey, man, like, it's cool. Like, you filled the bigger barns. Like, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What we don't see is a man who is concerned then with the good of others. He's not seeing the blessing he has received in order to be a blessing to others. He is focused on self. I will do this. I will get this plan. It is my barns. It is my harvest. It's mine, mine, mine. Like a young child and one of the first words they seem to ever speak, mine, right? And that just continues all the way through our life. That sort of mindset that it is mine, living as an owner and not as a steward. And then there's also this call then, not only this focus, there's this like focus on self, which we need to die to, but there's also this other issue of security. What are we looking to? What is this man looking to for his security? And it seems to be in his plan, in his strategy, in his means, in what he can come up with with. This is something that plagues all of us. What do we look to? Richard Foster says this in his great book, The Celebration of Discipline, commenting on where we look for security. Because anytime we look to something, it could be a relationship, it could be our career, it could be money, possessions, wealth. When we look to that, we are elevating that good gift from the Lord, and we're saying, that's ultimately what I trust in. 
And if that thing ever went away, like if your nightmare is about that thing going away, it might be showcasing for you and for me that we are overvaluing that thing, over-desiring that thing, putting a trust in that thing that it was never meant to carry. And so Richard Foster says these words, because we lack a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society, it is psychotic. It is psychotic because it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We, quote, buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. It is time we awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. And Jesus says, not only to this man, but to us, to those who have ears to hear, be on guard. This can happen, and you may not even realize it. And again, he's not saying money and possessions in and of themselves are the problem. But friends, there is this desire. I think if we are honest with one another, the more we are around people who live just a little bit, like kind of at that next economic level above wherever you and I happen to be, right? Like wherever you're at, like what it can create in us is this desire, like whoever that proverbial Joneses are, right? Like it used to be like, let's keep up with them. But now it seems to be this lust for like, I will surpass the Joneses. I will destroy the Joneses. The world will know nothing of the Joneses anymore because of like how I'm going to, to be and operate, and it just creates this lust. It creates, there's this insatiable desire for more. This is why the writer of the Proverbs would say in chapter 11, verse 28, whoever trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. That's a picture of Zoe. It's the life that we want. You want flourishing? You want to flourish like a green leaf? Do not trust in riches. There's another proverb I want to read to you. This comes out of Proverbs 23. And look at the imagery here. It's speaking of that moment like something entices us, right? Something that's like, ooh, that would be so fun to like own that or to have that or to experience that. And again, there are good things that the Lord gives us that he wants us to experience. But are we elevating those things? In Proverbs 23, verses 4 to 5, says this, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. There it goes. Okay. Um, be discerning enough to desist. To know your heart. Well, no, like that would not be good for me to go down that path. And he says this, when your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Think, think about that image. I think it's really powerful. It's like he's saying, when your eyes light on it, like there's that moment, it's like, ooh, if I could have that thing, right? That would bring like that just little like, you know, that, that little like rush that we get when we're like, ooh, this package has arrived. Or when I'm like, ooh, that thing looks enticing, right? Like I'm not knocking that. Like it's part of our physical makeup, right? Like there's a nice little endorphin rush that, that happens, right? It's like, oh, okay. But we keep living from one purchase to the next, if you're like, no, not me, man. I spent, I do not spend like that. I'm not like one of those people. I save. 
Okay, well, the more you save and the more you, I'm gonna I'm just check the app on my phone. I'm gonna look at my bank account. Oh yeah, it's, do, it's doing well. Like it's the same heart motivation. It can manifest itself in excessive spending or an excessive saving where you're just gripping so tightly that nothing ever goes out to bless anybody else. And what the Lord is inviting us to, to see is like your eye lights on something, right? It could be something to buy. It could be a certain amount to save, but it's this image. It's like suddenly it sprouts wings. It's like, oh, I, there it is. And then it sprouts wings and off it goes. And we're left sort of grasping. That's the picture of how unsatisfying the material things of this world actually are, if we're honest, right? I mean, all we have to do is just ask our, ourselves, like think about the last, like, you know, go back, maybe three Christmases ago. Maybe there was something you really wanted, and maybe you actually got it. Do you remember what it is? Probably not. I don't even remember this past Christmas, right? It's probably like buried in the garage, or maybe it's already out to the curb. I mean, who knows, right? Like those things, they overpromise and they under-deliver. Maybe a way to think about it is this, like wealth. Like if the Lord blesses us with wealth, and I think we should interject here for a moment. I read a study this week and I was like, hey, do you have more than like one like faucet in your home that produces clean water? If you do, you're some of the richest people in the world, all right? So at that, if we're using that as the baseline, then all of us here, even though we're not all in the same economic bracket, like all of us are wealthy. But even if you have a wealth beyond like what even the median, what the norm would be in our surrounding community, that there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. In fact, you can be owned by money and have very little of it. You can be somebody that's impoverished in all your, all your mind and your heart, like everything's like, yeah, but if I get money and I get money, then I'll be able to be satisfied. So you can be very rich or very poor, and have a proper understanding of money. You can be very rich or very poor and have an unhealthy, idolatrous view of money. At the end of the day, wealth, it is a good gift and it is a terrible, it's a terrible God. And we believe the lie that if I have more of what I already have somehow, like I'll actually be satisfied in that. It is a good gift. It's one to be utilized. There's, the Bible doesn't speak ill of Money, as we'll see here in a moment as we look at 1 Timothy. But it is a terrible God. It is a terrible master. You think of the Israelites enslaved in Egypt and the Pharaoh that's just like, make more bricks, produce. You are what you produce. Like, there's this constant, insatiable drive for more. Like, this is what money does. Oh, cool. You got to that spot? Well, how about the next level? How about a little bit more? And it's always promising, yep, at the next kind of click on the dial, that's when you'll be happy. And it's a terrible God. It's a, it's a master that enslaves us and demands more from us. But friends, it is actually, it can be a, a gift though too. First Timothy chapter 6, 6 to 10, Paul says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. He's just laying, he's being honest. That's one of the things I love about the Bible. It's just flat out honest about how things go. 
And then Paul writes to this young Timothy, this one he's trying to, to raise up, this young pastoral apprentice of his. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, this lusting, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Like, none of us would sign up for it. Yeah, I want to be pierced. Yeah, cool. Like, like we all believe that somehow it's going to bring this soothing, this satisfaction. It's like, no, no, no. Sometimes it causes you to actually leave the faith. Why? Because now you're trusting in that and not in the Lord Jesus. But do you notice those words there, kind of in, in bold and in blue? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This gets misquoted all the time. People are like, yep, money, it's the root of all evil. It's like, no, no, your Bible, it is not, all right? Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money, the over-desire for money and possessions, accumulation of wealth. That is the root of all kinds of evil. Like, we don't actually have what we do as the church and as far as, like, just places to meet in and budgets and all that if people weren't generous. Like, praise God that people use their money, the wealth, the things that they have been given. Jesus relied on the wealth of many people to do his ministry. Paul, the, the same thing. Like, you see this playing out. The Bible is not anti-wealth. The Bible is anti, like, for your joy, the Bible will speak against this love, this over-desire of money. I love the way Randy Alcorn, uh, he, his books are, are, are great. He's got one called The Treasure Principle. Let me read to you the, this quote. He's talking about just what it begins to create, like the, the mass, like the, the gravitational pull. He's got really helpful things, all right? An image that's always stuck with me of, of his in this, this same book is he talks about like, you know, imagine like you're staying at a hotel for a couple of days, all right? Um, you're, you're out of town or whatever. You're staying for a couple of nights and somebody knocks on the door and they're like, hey, um, somebody called down to the front desk. There's a lot of racket going on, like all this noise. And they, they're like, what's going on? You're like, oh yeah, sorry, that, that was me. And they peer in and they realize, like, you've knocked a wall down. You're remodeling the bathroom. You're putting new tile in, right? Like, you're, you're doing away with the furniture in the hotel room and you're bringing in new stuff. Like, they would look at you like, you, you're in violation of our agreement. But for one, like, you're out of your mind. Why in the world would you redecorate your hotel room? Like, that, and then he goes on to make the point that similarly, with some of our approach to life, it's not anti-remodeling. If you're working on your home right now, you're not in sin, okay? I'm just saying, like, but the image is this, like, hey, if this is fleeting, some of us are guilty of we're remodeling our hotel room. Like, we're giving all our time and energy to that, and it's like, whoa, that makes no sense at all. So Alcorn says this in regards to just the pull. He says, and then likens in, this will get us into our last section, the call to be generous people. He says, another benefit of giving is a freedom that we experience. There's this zoe sort of life that comes that way. It's a matter of basic physics. The greater the mass, the greater the hold that mass exerts. The more things we own, the greater their total mass. The more they grip us, setting us in an orbit around them, and finally, like a black hole, they suck us in. Can we be honest if that's where you find yourself this morning, have you been in that spot? Are you currently in that spot? Like, man, this thing has just gotten out of hand. Maybe it started with some good godly intentions, but man, it's easy to just keep going and going and like never cut it off. And suddenly we find ourselves being sucked into this black hole. 
Let's look at the last couple verses in closing. The Lord says there's this calling. What's the requirement to have a Zoe sort of life? What is the requirement? Like, What's it actually going to take to have a life where money and finances are properly ordered so we can actually have this flourishing life that the Lord invites us into? And so look again at verses 20 to 21 that we see here. Verse 20 says this, God said to him, fool, which is jarring language. Calls this man a fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He's like, you've made all these plans. I, 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 my, my, my. You think you're going to sit back, relax, eat, drink, be merry. You think you've got all these days. He's like, you don't know. The Lord has numbered your days. And in this parable, this man, like, this is it. This is the end of the road for him. He's like, so all that stuff that you've done and acquired, have you used it to bless anybody else? You've got all this stuff prepared, right? But is your soul prepared? He's like, in all this stuff, like, whose will it actually be? And then verse 21, it concludes this way. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So a question to ask ourselves in this, if we're going to have that Zoe sort of life, are you and I rich toward God? Like that's what this is driving at. Are we using the things that we've been blessed with to be a blessing other people? Our richness towards God shows up in our generosity to others. It's not be rich towards God because God's like, man, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, I hope they get their tithe percentage right because if, if they don't, man, like, I don't know how my kingdom's going to advance. Like, he's not concerned about anything. He owns everything, right? Richness in, towards God is this mindset that we see ourselves as those who are meant to take what we have and we use some of it for ourselves to live on, certainly, but then we also are generous with what the Lord has given to us. Maybe a way to think about it is this. Like you and I, right, we are the deliverer. We are not the destination. Like you have a friend, they live out of town, it's their birthday, so you go and you buy them, you, their birthday's coming up, you buy them a gift, right? And you go to the postals, post office, right? Or you do what probably most of us do. You're like, I will go on Amazon, I'll have something sent to them. However it looks for you, post office, Amazon, whatever it is, right? You have this gift sent to your friend, all right? And then maybe a few weeks go by and they haven't thanked you for it. Now you're like, kind of like, yeah, well, I guess we weren't friends, right? Um, and so you're having the, this moment, but maybe you're talking to them um, and somehow it comes up in conversations like, no, I never, I never got your gift, right? And then some way, somehow, this is a weird scenario. I don't know how this works out, but somehow you realize like, oh, the postal worker or the Amazon driver, they actually took the gift and they've very much been enjoying what you were sending to your friend, right? They'd be like, wait, what? Like you were the deliverer, you're not the destination, but yet, I think we oftentimes live that way. Like we forget like the Lord has brought us things and it's not meant to terminate with us. We're actually meant to deliver it to other people, to be generous, a richness towards God. That's what it actually looks like. Like we're called to be generous to Jesus' church. We're called to be generous to our community. I think one of the things too that can be a struggle sometimes in the church, right? It sometimes even can be a, a desire for like, hey, um, I'll, I like to give, but I like to give only kind of when there's a special project. May I put before you, humbly submit to you that there is no more special project than Jesus' church. 
And I'm not saying that because like, man, the budget's really behind, so we're gonna give this message. No, like by God's grace, we're doing well. God has provided for us. He's been so faithful over these 14 years. Praise God for that. I'm not up here saying any of those things. I'm just saying, listen, like this, Jesus chose his church. And so part of what it looks like is to be generous toward his church. And beyond that, what do we do to engage in the community and love other people? How are we going to point our community to Jesus? How are we going to use our talents and steward those and the time that we have, but also our financial resources? And the way we do this is we have to remember the richness of Jesus. Like you and I cannot meet this requirement of being rich toward God unless we see, unless our hearts are gripped by the fact that God has been so immensely rich toward you and me. It's why Paul would write, for you know, this is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. For your sake and my sake. Like before time began, God peered through like all of eternity. It's like, for your sake, I will send my son who possesses everything and he will empty himself. For your sake, he will become poor, destitute, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And he's not speaking of, he's not speaking of earthly like money and possessions financially. He's saying there is a spiritual bankruptcy that all of us have. And Jesus himself is stripped of every earthly possession that he has. His back is whipped. He's nailed to a cross. He's stripped of the relationship with his father, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He becomes completely bankrupt and destitute so that you and I can be filled up, that our account can be filled with the righteousness of Jesus. So when God looks at you, when God the Father looks at you, he sees his son and he says, here's the inheritance. You're in on all of this. There's literally nothing that you and I lack in Christ Jesus. When you understand how rich, when I understand how rich God has been toward us, it opens up our tight-fistedness. It's like, Lord, allow me to be a deliverer. Praise God, I get to participate in this. I am not the destination. And so he invites us into that. It's why Proverbs will close with this. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. And lest you think for a moment that's some prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. That's like, we need to reclaim these verses from the bad theology that's out there. And just know this, it's speaking of a joy. Like when we get, that's how we get to experience this Zoe life. We celebrate, we marvel at the richness of God toward us in Christ. And we're like, wow, we get to participate. We get to play. We get to be part of this. That's the invitation. And so church, may we be a people that do some honest work today, confessing, maybe in those places where we're like, yeah, I, this has got a grip on my heart. Be honest with that. This is the place we can be honest. The gospel frees us to be honest. And we can celebrate the richness that we have in Christ. And we can be a people committed to his mission. So let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, your kindness your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you did not withhold anything, that you emptied yourself, that you viewed yourself as the, the deliverer of this grace and this mercy. Thank you that you took on our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy so that we could be filled with your righteousness, a true richness and riches that come only in you. And so, God, I pray that you would use us as your people, 
that we would be people that live open-handedly and generously and we would experience this Zoe sort of life, that we would no longer be bound and enslaved to possessions and to materialism and to the pursuit of money. But would we use that which you've given to us, that we might thank you and praise you for what we have and to live open-handedly with it? And God, I pray that you would do it for your glory, for the good of our neighbor, and for our just deep gladness and joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.